Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This episode of When Diplomacy Fails is brought to you by Perdigo. Who? Well, history friend... Let me ask you a question. Are you a researcher? Are you a student? Are you a history podcaster? Or do you want to be? Well then, I'd like to introduce you to a fantastic resource called Perdigo. With Perdigo, that is P-E-R-L-E-G-O, <laughs> you can access thousands of academic and library books, create dedicated reading lists, take notes within books, set a timer for studying, and so much more. You should know I'm not just pulling this recommendation out of thin air. I've been using Pertigo for over a year now, and I absolutely love their selection of history books, but you should also know that you can use them for a wide variety of other disciplines too, including the sciences, engineering, and I don't know, whatever else there is to study in college aside from history. I haven't really branched out very much. There are few things more satisfying than locating a really expensive book online only to check Pertigo, and see that it's waiting there for you to read. For the PhD especially, Pertigo has been a godsend, and I got to access such tomes as Palmerston and the Times by Lawrence Fenton, The Powers of the Press by Alad Jones, Masculinity and Manliness in 19th Century Britain by John Tosh, and many more. Pertigo is also great for diplomatic history, particularly British intervention in the US Civil War, which we looked at recently for the Trent Affair miniseries. Honestly, if you're a student, a researcher, or just a plain history nerd with some money to spare, Pertigo should be your first stop. And thanks to them, I'm able to offer you a pretty sweet deal where you get a week's free trial to see if you like it, and then you get 50% off your first month's subscription too. Normally, for the record, Pertigo would cost you 12 bucks a month, or just under 100 a year if you want to do the annual way, and this small investment more than pays for itself with all the money you'll be saving on books. If you just want to check it out, remember you get that free trial for yourself just to see how useful it is. And believe me when I tell you, once you try it, you'll never look back. Since I'm constantly researching, studying and podcasting, I'm actually asked quite a lot where I access my sources and how I find so many. So I'm happy to finally share Pertigo with you, which up to now has been my best kept secret. But no more. Use the code WDF2022, that is WDF2022, to get 50% off your first month and click on the link in the description below so that Pertigo know I sent you and they send me some pretty sweet kickbacks. Thanks so much to Pertigo for agreeing to be When Diplomacy Fails' first ever affiliate and for helping me out with books over the years. And thanks to you, history friend, for hearing me out. Now, 
Without any further ado, onto episode 64 of the 30 Years of War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 64 of the Thirty Years' War. So last time we examined the story of Sweden after the intervention of France, bringing her story up to the point in October 1636, when everything seemed to be looking up with a Swedish victory at the Battle of Wittstock. Wittstock was a critical lifeline for Sweden, but as we also learned, Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna was battling chronic problems which a single victory on the battlefield couldn't solve. These battles would take time, but at the very least, Wittstock had brought some of it. With the Imperial Saxon army defeated and Brandenburg under threat, there was reason to hope in Stockholm that Sweden's military reputation could be resurrected and her strong position from 1631 to 32 could be resurrected with it. Could this actually be the case? Certainly, Sweden stood the best chance against the Emperor if it cooperated with France. Yet, even here, some caveats remained. Oxenstierna had refrained from locking Sweden into the war with France because he didn't want to sacrifice his get-out-of-war-free card, essentially his freedom of action. Wittstock was an important demonstration to Oxenstierna and his colleagues in the shaken Regency Council that Sweden still had the means to fight back, but she had to be ready for the fight which was still to come. 1636 had been a banner year for the unofficial Franco-Swedish alliance, but it had also been a year characterised by something else. Lots of peace feelers, potential mediators and actual conferences were sent out and established. Strange though it may seem to see the major actors sponsoring these initiatives, when we know that things were really just getting started and there was 12 years of the war left, it certainly says something about how all involved actually felt about the prospect of a long, drawn-out conflict. The reality was, they knew they couldn't afford it, yet the other reality said that nobody was yet desperate enough to give away anything significant enough to make peace happen. In the midst of these conundrums, the Emperor confirmed that his son, Ferdinand III, the victor of Nordlingen, as his successor, and just in time too, because two months later, in February 1637, Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor and, in many cases, engineer of the Thirty Years' War, died. In this episode then, we obviously have a lot to cover, but we'll open with that weighted scene, the moment in February 1637 where, arguably, the war's last man standing finally bowed out. A 59-year-old man aged beyond his years, lay dying in Vienna on the 14th of February 1637. This was Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor since 1619, leader of the Austrian Habsburg dynasty, hardline Catholic, pride of the Jesuits, and some would argue instigator of a war which had raged across the Germanies for the last two decades. Of course, the war was not so simple that it could all be blamed on Ferdinand II, and there was nothing simple about Ferdinand II either. To his friends, and even to strangers, he remained cheerful and pleasant, yet to those that defied him, he treated with merciless contempt. He removed rebellious families from their historical bases and trampled upon centuries of religious tradition in the likes of Bohemia. He hired and bribed with land fabulously successful generalissimos like Albrecht of Wallenstein, 
calling on him regularly, only in the end to betray him and order his assassination. There's no question that Ferdinand II was a formidable character. His refusal to compromise netted his dynasty previously unimagined successes. And the emperor's hold over Germany was raised up to such heights as to make Charles V marvel. The Peace of Prague from 1635 was perhaps Ferdinand's greatest achievement because it brought the Germanies together and directed their energies against the invader rather than each other. This treaty had only been made possible after compromise on Ferdinand's part and the suspension of the Edict of Restitution, which had been so inflammatory and caused him so many problems with the Protestant rulers. Once these necessary compromises were made, Ferdinand learned what he should have known all along, that only through the accommodation of the other religious bloc in the empire could a lasting peace be made. And it was only in death that Ferdinand had achieved, according to one anonymous manuscript, that universal peace which he always desired but was never able to secure. It'd be difficult to deny that a less dogmatic, fundamentalist, uncompromising emperor would have brought Germany together earlier and with less bloodshed and suffering. At the same time, we can't know what the empire's fate would have been had Ferdinand not been at the helm. Unsurprisingly, historians have weighed in on the character of the man who personified the greater part of the Thirty Years' War. One of these historians, a guy you may have heard of, Friedrich Schiller, who basically wrote the account of the Thirty Years' War before other English-speaking historians had their turn, Schiller wrote on Ferdinand, saying, During a reign of eighteen years, he had never once laid aside the sword, nor tasted the blessings of peace as long as his hand swayed the imperial scepter. Endowed with the qualities of a good sovereign, adorned with many of those virtues which ensures the happiness of a people, and by nature gentle and humane, we see him, from erroneous ideas of the monarch's duty, become at once the instrument and the victim of the evil passions of others, his benevolent intentions frustrated, and the friend of justice converted into the oppressor of mankind, the enemy of peace, and the scourge of its people. Amiable in domestic life and respectable as a sovereign, but in his policy ill-advised. While he gained the love of his Roman Catholic subjects, he incurred the excretion of the Protestants. History exhibits many and greater despots than Ferdinand II, yet he alone has the unfortunate celebrity of kindling a Thirty Years' War. But to produce its lamentable consequences, his ambition must have been seconded by a kindred spirit of the age, a congenial state of previous circumstances, and existing seeds of discord. At a less turbulent period, the spark would have found no fuel, and the peacefulness of the age would have choked the voice of individual ambition. But now the flash fell upon a pile of accumulated combustibles, and Europe was in flames. Such an account, in my view, seems even-handed, perhaps even biased towards Ferdinand II. He didn't act maligiously, he was not a cruel person, and instead he was led astray by fundamentalists in his ear who fanned the lesser aspects of his character and moved him away from moderate action. The historian Richard Bassett credits him with empowering the Jesuits, but also setting the base for a Habsburg army, which later emperors would copy. It is worth noting that through the Peace of Prague, the creation of this army was made possible, 
because the Catholic League and Evangelical Union were both folded into it. While Ferdinand had played no small role in fanning the flames of religious discord, he died having rid the empire of two armed confessional blocks, uniting them under the authority of himself. Henceforth, nationality as Germans rather than religious identity as Catholics or Protestants would move his vassals and their subjects. Or this was at least the idea. The war by 1637 had long abandoned its solely religious flavour, if indeed such a flavour had ever moved Ferdinand by itself. Now it was a war motivated by political strategic considerations, where multi-ethnic and multi-faith states like France, Sweden and the Dutch Republic were armed and set against the Habsburg dynasty. The Peace of Prague had changed the nature of the war, and Ferdinand II had made this change possible. One could argue that under such trying circumstances, the Habsburg dynasty was actually fortunate to have Ferdinand, since these were times of immense difficulty, where so much could be transformed in the course of a single day, as the Battle of Breitenfeld showed. Following shattering defeats like these, Ferdinand II picked himself up, gave himself to God, and prepared to undo his enemies once more. This tenacity of purpose and faith in his cause meant that a dynasty which seemed doomed in 1619, 1625, 1631 and afterwards did not die, but lasted sustained until 1918. Yet, fortunate though the Habsburg dynasty was to have Ferdinand II, it was to Germany's greater fortune that Ferdinand II's son was not like his father. The Roman Empire needs me no more, Emperor Ferdinand II is reported to have said on his deathbed, for it is already provided with a successor, and indeed an excellent one. This was perhaps Ferdinand's greatest legacy. He had provided the empire with a successor, unburdened by his own connections to the Jesuits, nor affected by strong inclinations to usurp Protestant worship. Ferdinand III was moved instead by a singular aim, which motivated him from the beginning to the end of his equally long reign as emperor, that aim being the quest for peace. Ferdinand II's aim to guarantee the succession of his son had been a long-running campaign of pressure and favour, but only through an election could such a decision be finalised. For this election to take place, the electors, which we have frequently encountered, would have to be present to cast their vote. By 1637, this system of electors had changed somewhat, thanks largely to the removal of the Palatine elector, the increased Habsburg control over Bohemia, and the elevation of Bavaria's Duke Maximilian to the status of elector in his own right. These developments had effectively increased the Catholic pro-Habsburg vote, yet Ferdinand had still struggled to get what he wanted the last time all the relevant electors had been present. In the summer and autumn of 1630, the Regensburg Diet, for example, had seen the concerned parties spent more time focusing on the problematic status of Wallenstein, while the Protestant electors personally boycotted the gathering in protest of the Edict of Restitution, which was then less than a year old. Here then was a new opportunity for the ailing emperor to appeal to his subjects and leave as his final legacy a smooth succession. It opened on the 15th of September 1636 and remained in session until late January 1637. 
through its duration, petitions and envoys from the influential and the weak alike were sent. It was impossible for external parties to ignore this seminal moment in the Empire's history, or for an opportunity to curry favour with the new Emperor. It was hardly a surprise that the Spanish were also heavily involved. Count Onate, the same Spanish official who had negotiated the division of the Habsburg territories in 1617 and remained in Vienna since, paid hundreds of thousands of florins to the electors of Bavaria, Mainz, Cologne and Trier. These expenses were scarcely necessary, since although neither of the Protestant electors attended, citing the excesses of the war as an excuse, they still committed their vote to the Emperor's son. I mean, it wasn't as though there were any other candidates with a similar pedigree or prestige. Yet the meeting represented more than a mere formality. Ferdinand III was elected as King of the Romans and Holy Roman Emperor on the 22nd of December, but in the background, other less predictable initiatives were also sponsored. The money which Count Donate had provided came in handy once the Dutch envoys urged the Empire to declare its official neutrality. That such a request had been necessary at all demonstrates how the lines had been blurred between the issue of war and peace. You might recall that in 1630, a declaration of war against the Dutch had not been forthcoming from the Empire. Imperial soldiers had served with distinction alongside their Spanish allies since at least 1621 though, meaning that Spanish and Imperials had fought against the Dutch many times already. There was no sense of hesitation among either the soldiers or their commanders that an official declaration of war was necessary first. The soldiers just, well, followed the employment opportunities, and these opportunities followed the beginning of new campaigns. German figures were also heard to demand the return of the bishoprics of Metz, Toul and Verdun, all of which had been occupied by the French. This despite the fact that France and the Empire were now in an unofficial war. So, a kind of pattern is emerging here. When it came to questions of war and peace, clarity was in short supply at Regensburg, yet it was still an important forum and an opportunity to take stock of the situation, following a significant peace treaty and nearly two decades of war. It's also interesting to see how the prospects for both Protestant electors changed with the shifting circumstances of autumn 1636. Initially, John George of Saxony sent agents to Regensburg arguing that the best way to rid the empire of the Swedes was for Protestant Germans to pay them off. This confirmed the Habsburg view that such Protestants had invited the Swedes in the first place. Yet as the weeks progressed, this approach became more difficult to pursue. George William of Brandenburg, who was in a weaker position and possessed a smaller army than his Saxon counterpart, only 11,000 strong, sent agents to insist on an open discussion of the negotiations then underway between the Saxon elector and Chancellor Oxenstierna. Paradoxically though, the Swedish victory at Wittstock one month into this new Regensburg Diet compelled George William to move closer to the Emperor as one of the first acts of the victorious Swedish army was to occupy Brandenburg and send its elector into headlong retreat towards his East Prussian appendage. George William of Brandenburg remained deeply concerned that the Emperor would just hand Pomerania to Sweden in return for a swift peace, an outcome which was both feared and resented as the childless Duke Bogoslav of Pomerania had promised to bequeath the lucrative Pomeranian duchy to Brandenburg after his death, a 
and then the arrival of the Swedes in 1630 complicated matters. Resentment over this situation had moved George William to act against the Swedes, and he correctly feared that Oxenstierna would never relinquish Pomerania willingly. So, in June 1637, George William formalised an alliance with the new emperor, which compelled both parties to defend the other, and granted financial assistance to Brandenburg's heavily indebted court. Unfortunately for George William, though, Pomerania remained a hot topic well into the 1640s, and was foremost in the mind of George William's son, Frederick William, also known as the Great Elector, when the latter sent envoys to negotiate at Westphalia. At the same time, John George abandoned his brief efforts as mediator between the Emperor and the Swedes, once it became plain that the latter were too powerful, following the conclusion of a peace with Poland that freed up several thousand soldiers, and the Battle of Wittstock which followed this as these men were put to great use. The opportunity for the Germans to avenge themselves on the Swedes had been lost by January 1637, just as surely as the Germans themselves squandered their opportunities here to make a lasting peace for the Empire. Curiously though, Regensburg had not been the sole moment where a gathering of German officials and foreign dignitaries had taken place. No less a figure than Pope Urban VIII had urged a peace conference to be held, where the interests and resentments of the three major Catholic powers, them being the Emperor, the French and the Spanish, could be hashed out. Pope Urban had played at mediation before with some encouraging results. He had sponsored the 1626 Treaty of Monson, which ended the War of the Valtelline Passes in North Italy, and he followed that with the 1631 Treaty of Churrasco, which brought the War of the Mantuan Succession to an end. In 1634, then, he tried again, calling on those three aforementioned parties to come to Cologne. In the Pope's mind, peace was a noble endeavour, but this was not peace for peace's sake. True enemies of the Church lurked, so that while believing Catholics had fought one another and died, the infidel Turks and heretical Protestants had gained ground. Cardinal Richelieu might have balked at these requests in private, but as a cardinal, and as a servant of Catholic France, he couldn't ignore them. Stalling for time, Richelieu had accepted the invitation in theory, only to expose France's true intentions when the war Pope Urban feared did erupt for real in May 1635. This added a greater sense of urgency to the Pope's peace mission, but Richelieu continued to stall out of fear of alienating his Protestant allies, who were not to be given representation at this Cologne Congress. Richelieu did select his main representative for the Congress, a man by the name of Claude Davout, who we last met facilitating peace between Poland and Sweden at Stumsdorf. Yet he sent Claude Davout to Hamburg in the meantime, where it was hoped Davout could persuade the Swedes to agree to a more permanent concrete version of the treaty which they had signed but failed to ratify at Wismar in March 1636, which would have actually solidified a Franco-Swedish alliance. But these were not the only diplomatic efforts that were being sent out at this time. King Christian IV of Denmark, still smarting from his loss to the Emperor in 1629, and greatly fearing the rapid rise of his Swedish neighbour, proposed a congress at Lübeck where all powers would be represented. Landgrave George II of Hesse-Darmstadt, the son-in-law of the Elector of Saxony, had also proposed a congress to take place at Breslau in Silesia as early as 1633. 
With varying degrees of success, these congresses played host to fascinating scenes of scheme and intrigue, where Protestants and Catholics alike sought to peel potential allies away from their respective camps, and plentiful money purses were flashed to make dangerous points. It was all an important prelude to the eventual Westphalia Congress, and the misfired conferences of the mid-1630s taught the participants a series of important lessons, the most important among them being that one needed to possess some kind of supremacy in the military or political sphere before sitting down to treat. As the late 1630s and early 1640s were to demonstrate, furthermore, potentates were often reluctant to make concrete proposals on the expectation that the status quo, so changeable and unreliable, could change again with the advent of a new military triumph for either side. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. These approaches potentially presented some problems for Richelieu, as offers for a separate peace for Sweden remain potent so long as Axel Oxenstierna did not wish to formally tie himself to his ally. Until their alliance was confirmed, and just a bit of a spoiler, it wouldn't be confirmed until 1638, Richelieu was anxious that Sweden might exit the war prematurely and leave the French alone to face the combined might of the two Habsburg branches. It was with some gloom that Richelieu noted in September 1637, Everyone is making peace with the emperor, who is deliberating how to carry the war into France. Richelieu certainly had reason enough to lament French fortunes since the declaration of war against Spain. The war had not gone France's way, with an uninspiring campaign in partnership with the Dutch in 1635, desperate scenes of invasion and panic in 1636, and political disasters further afield as pro-French regimes in Savoy, Mantua and Hesse Castle were all toppled. This complicated matters for France in North Italy and Germany, since the Landgrave of Hesse Castle had been one of Gustavus Adolphus's early and most enthusiastic supporters. 
Not until 1639 would the state of Hesse Castle be confirmed as an ally of France, but Savoy slipped into a four-year civil war from 1637, and Mantua was inherited by a pro-Spanish daughter-in-law of the late Duke, who France, if you'll remember, had only recently fought so hard to install in the region in the Mantuan War of Succession from 1629 to 31. It may appear strange that after preparing the war for several years, Richelieu would be so quick to revert to negotiations with the Spanish to bring it to an end. After years of preparing for this final epic showdown, should the Cardinal not have been prepared to fight to the bitter end with his Spanish foe? Well, really, we shouldn't be surprised to see Richelieu engage in negotiations so soon after taking the plunge and declaring war. Maintaining continuous negotiations, even with his foes, was a principle of diplomacy that Richelieu believed so sincerely in, he actually devoted a whole chapter to it in his political testament, and it was likely, in the year 1635, that this part biography, part guidebook that Richelieu wrote, was composed. On the subject of continuous negotiation, Richelieu put the matter most succinctly when he wrote that, It is absolutely necessary to the well-being of the state to negotiate ceaselessly, either openly or secretly, and in all places, even in those from which no present fruits are reaped, and still more in those for which no future prospects as yet seem likely. I can truthfully say that I have seen in my time the nature of affairs change completely for both France and the rest of Christendom as a result of my having, under the authority of the king, put this principle into practice, something up to then completely neglected in this realm. He who negotiates continuously will finally find the right instant to attain his ends, and even if this does not come about, at least it can be said that he has lost nothing while keeping abreast of events in the world which is not of little consequence in the life of states. Negotiations are innocuous remedies which never do harm. This philosophy was certainly true for the other potentates as well. Negotiations could never do harm so long as one protected his party throughout their duration. There was nothing to be lost from investigating the price for peace, and it serves to bear this in mind as the war progressed. There was no uniform plan to drag out the suffering for a nice and tidy 30 years. From the moment it became viable to do so, as we've seen, conferences and talk of conferences and talk about talks of conferences exploded in frequency. The reason why these congresses failed wasn't because those present were inherently opposed to peace. It was instead because they believed they could achieve what they wanted more effectively through a continuation of the war. While the diplomats talked and the statesmen schemed, the soldiers didn't sit still. France, after absorbing the best of what the Habsburgs could throw, was unable to capitalise on the general retreat from Picardy or Alsace. In the summer of 1636, the Spanish had captured, among other towns, Corby in Picardy, and from September to November of that year, Richelieu and his king mobilised the French army to take it back. The ripples of the Battle of Wittstock were felt in the French camp, as imperial reinforcements under Matthias Gallus were sent to shore up the Emperor's position in southern Germany after that Swedish victory, rather than confront the French in Alsace. In turn, this freed Richelieu to call on Bernhard of Saxe-Weimar, who was now a French subject, and ask him to donate some troops of his own. 
The effort to retake the town of Corby and thus undo the worst of Spain's triumphs during the troubling initial months of the Spanish invasion was a success, but it was also a distraction. 1636 thus ended with the French reacting to Spanish initiatives as Richelieu could not afford to launch any campaigns of his own. But these setbacks in the French camp hadn't marred the confidence of the Dutch stadtholder Frederick Henry. He had cooperated with the French, who promised 5,000 hand-picked men to attack Dunkirk in the spring of 1637, and the fleet left The Hague on the 7th of May to accomplish that formidable task. Dunkirk was a prized port of the Spanish Netherlands, and for the Dutch, it was also the source of legions of headaches. This was where the Flemish sent out the majority of their privateers to attack Dutch shipping. The ingenious design of the Flemish privateers and the earnest greed of the sailors singled Dunkirk out as a problem spot for the Dutch really as early as 1622, when one political pamphlet then observed, Here some seamen have already waxed so rich that they may henceforth live like lords in lust and luxury, wherefore the numbers of brave fellows doth greatly increase day by day. By brave fellows, of course, it meant pirates, and Dunkirk had become a place where pirates and even Dutch deserters could make a grand living. By 1637, it had become too great a thorn in the Republic's side to ignore. The Dutch fleet had set out with high hopes, but almost immediately, Frederick Henry's voyage was met with misfortune, as a terrible storm smashed several of his ships and left the 14,000 soldiers on board badly shaken. As his men became wrecked further by disease, the stadtholder remained true to his reputation and worked to salvage a ruined plan by improvising. In early July 1637, his forces were landed, and shortly thereafter, they made their way to besiege the fortress town of Breda. Breda had been the culmination of the Spanish campaign of reconquest in 1625, all those years ago, when the brilliant Spanish commander Ambrosio Spinola surged across the outskirts of the Dutch Republic, seizing what was previously believed to be safe. Among these towns that Spinola seized was Breda, the official seat of the House of Orange and a settlement fundamental to the identity of the Republic. News of its endangerment couldn't come at a worse time, because it was in 1625 that the Republic's favoured family was facing something of a succession crisis, and thus a pause in the personal military leadership of the House of Orange would be necessary. As Frederick Henry's half-brother, Maurice of Orange, lay dying, Frederick had to rush to relieve Breda, but the tragic loss of his brother was compounded then by the loss of Breda, and morale in the Dutch Republic reached an all-time low by late 1625. Some in the Dutch government even wanted to offer the Spanish a new truce. The situation soon picked up for the Dutch into the late 1620s, but the loss of Breda, being Frederick Henry's first loss and first campaign as well, must still have stung. Certainly it was the last piece of territory which the Spanish still held in the Republic, and if the Dutch could expel the Spanish here with a sharp surprise attack, then surely those Spaniards would face plummeting morale of their own, to the equal of that which had so reduced the Dutch twelve years before. Within days, the siege process of Breda had begun, and Frederick Henry was evidently determined to exercise those demons. The place was surrounded by ditches, 
The river was dammed and flooded the countryside, Breda itself was cut off, and the relief army led personally by the Cardinal Infant could not make any headway against the defences that Frederick Henry had erected. Believing the situation to be futile, the Cardinal Infant rode off elsewhere, effectively leaving Breda to its fate. By mid-October 1637, the city was firmly in Frederick Henry's hands, but the siege had not been without its casualties. Perhaps surprisingly, the 5,000 French soldiers, originally earmarked for a siege of Dunkirk, hadn't abandoned the Stadtholder when he decided to march on Breda instead, and this is underlined by the loss of a distinguished Frenchman among the Allied army. Hercule Girard Charnache was shot through the head as he led a charge on the Spanish-held walls, an explosive end for a figure who was better known for his diplomatic exploits as Baron Charnache, the man who had played a key role in brokering the truce of Altmark, which had pulled Sweden out of its Polish war in 1629, and enabled Gustavus to go on his tear thereafter. Still, it couldn't be denied that a great triumph for Frederick Henry was at hand, and the historian George Edmondson wrote, The fall of Breda caused the greatest joy throughout the United Provinces, for it was the last place of importance within their boundaries that was in the hands of the Spaniards. The Netherlanders now felt themselves really masters of their own domain. Perhaps the man the Habsburgs needed was their new emperor, who had led imperial forces to victory alongside the Cardinal Infant at Nordlingen. Although this triumph had brought him much admiration, Ferdinand III could not debase his authority by serving as a mere commander. This at least would have been his response for any such request to command the army and capture lightning in a bottle twice. But the reality was that the emperor's office and authority would be irreparably tarnished by any loss that he might suffer to a common Swedish or Dutch commander, and this was surely the true incentive for Ferdinand III to stay in Vienna. Whether he liked it or not, his commanding days were over. Surveying the position of his dynasty in 1637, Ferdinand III could be confident of one fact above all, that the war would not and could not end with at least one other significant Habsburg triumph. In the north, in Pomerania, where the Swedes dominated Mecklenburg, Brandenburg and Saxony, even threatening Leipzig, much was to be done. Yet Ferdinand would also have been informed of the variety of new theatres in the war, supporting Spain with 30,000 Imperials on the River Meuse, recruiting 16,000 more Germans along the Rhine, 12,000 men under Duke Charles of Lorraine who might recapture the Spanish road were also available. These were figures notably reduced from the unsustainable highs of Albrecht of Wallenstein, who had on hand 100,000 men or more at a time. It seemed that Ferdinand III had learned several lessons from the war's early years. Perhaps his father had taught him a thing or two about leading the empire, and yet... No education in the world could have prepared the new emperor for what was to follow. A full decade of warfare, as the schemers talked, the soldiers marched, and his empire was ripped apart. We'll continue that story next time, history friends, but before we go, thanks to you for being so patient over the last few months. Things have been a bit up in the air, as you may or may not be aware. But the good news is I finally got a new laptop, so we should be back on the road very soon. Make sure you sign up to our Patreon if you want any extra content coming to you. And make sure you also check out Perligo if you want to access library and academic books 
at a fraction of their usual price. Remember that link in the description below will take you there and get you a pretty sweet deal. This has been episode 64 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.